passage, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, which can be found on the insert, the bulletin insert. Let me read that for us. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leaving you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The word of the Lord. Well, I was in my game closet recently looking at the games that we have. With four children, we have a variety of games, Monopoly and Clue. And I came upon one of my favorite games, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And every time I play that game, I have to come to the conclusion, no, I'm not smarter than a fifth grader because my son consistently beats me who is a fifth grader. Well, if you remember that show, uh, I don't know if it's still on or not, certainly in reruns, it's hosted by Jeff Foxworthy. He's quite a character, Foxworthy is. And I don't know if you've ever heard him uh, do his shtick on uh, you know you're a redneck if. Well, I was curious, so I went and sort of discovered some of his are you a redneck ifs, which I will read currently in the hopes of offending someone in our congregation. (laughs) You know you're a redneck if you ever cut your grass and found a car. You know that you're a redneck if you have more than two brothers named Bubba or Junior. You know you're a redneck if you've ever financed a tattoo. I like that one. You know you're a redneck if you have a very special baseball cap just for formal occasions. Two more. You know you're a redneck if you think a subdivision is part of a math problem. (laughs) And you know that you're a redneck if your mother has ammo on her Christmas list. I hope that none of those touched off a nerve with you. I'm sure I'll get an email or two. Don't worry, I'll pick on you next week if I didn't get you. It's true, though, that identity determines action. Now, obviously, that's a lot of stereotyping there, but identity determines action. Here's what I mean by that. Every time I walk in the door, lo and behold, there's a little dog waiting for me, my dog Sadie, who can't wait to see her master. Now, I'm not even a dog guy, but the dog comes to see me. Why? Because it's in her nature to want to be by her master. Her identity determines her action. Conversely, my cat has never come to see me at the door, aside from to claw my eyes out because I haven't fed it, because identity determines action. 
You know, the truth of the matter is sometimes you can't figure out what your identity is until there's some sort of tension, if you will, to ratchet up, to show what's inside. You know, before, that when you're shaken, what comes out? So for instance, if I was to take this, uh, whatever drink we want to call here, and I was to say, hand it to Finn, who would go ahead and open. <laughs> Finn was, yeah, yeah, I'll try it. I wonder what'll happen. <laughs> well, we know exactly what will happen, don't we? Identity determines action, but it's in those times of testing that really reveal what's inside. That's the truth in many things. It's the truth, for instance, in marriage. You know, when I marry someone and they've come together and they've said, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health. Well, none of those things are really happening at that time. It's in the tension of the marriage. Further down the line, when those challenges come, when it's revealed whether that love is true and able to stand the test of time or not. You know, in the US, we have this big issue where we really want to try to bifurcate these two concepts. Really doesn't matter how you live matters what you believe, but really those two are separate. Whatever you believe and however you act, those things really don't have any uh, connection with one another. But we know that that's not true. Because if you want to look at the tree, you, you, you want to understand what the tree is, you have to look at the fruit. Because identity determines action. You are what you do. <clears throat> you know this in your own life, don't you? You know, one of the biggest challenges in life is when you have a test that comes along and you um, are faced with it and you have to face up against it and however you respond sort of gives a window into your heart sometimes the hardest times in my life have been when I respond and in a way that I thought it was a different person and then I see how I respond and I realize what's going on inside of me well that's really what's going on in this whole passage here if you remember in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, who is a pastor most likely, is writing to this church, small church just like you, uh, just like our church in a cosmopolitan city. And they're in a time of testing. The rubber has really hit the road in terms of their faith. The honeymoon with Jesus is over. And they're being persecuted and challenged for their faith. They're losing friends. They're losing jobs. They're losing homes. And right now is that testing in their life to determine who they really are, whether the faith that they have is really genuine or not. In the same way, the passage here as speaking them, to them, I want to speak to you, to ask us the question, when really we peel away all the layers, who are we in Christ? See, I want to touch on three key points in this sermon. The first is to understand tests what they are. Tests are opportunities. Test is an opportunity to reveal what's inside of us. So we're going to talk about tests. That's the first point. Number two, we're going to talk about how do we prepare for these tests because the tests will surely come. And then the final thing we're going to talk about, point number three, is how do we stay strong to the end amidst these tests as they come in our life? Because the truth is, the proof of how we respond in testing is the proof of who we really are. Identity determines action. Well, let's look at this first part. The test is the opportunity. Now, in this passage, uh, last week, we are seeing how the writer was comparing Moses to Jesus. 
these two great leaders, Moses and Jesus. Jesus, who is superior to Moses as the builder of the house, is superior to the house itself. Well, now the writer turns and he looks at the followers of Moses, and he looks at these, these, this Hebrew church here, the followers of Hebrews. He's looking at the followers, and he says in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of the testing in the wilderness when your father put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now, he's referring to the time uh, in Israel when Moses had led the people out of Israel, and they were at a place called Kadesh Barnea, right on the edge of the promised land. And they were ready, getting ready to go in. Remember, the Lord had said, I will lead you out of Egypt and to, into a land flowing with milk and honey. So they're right on the precipice of the land. And they send 12 spies into the land. This is Numbers 12, Numbers 13, to search out the land and get a sense of what this land looks like. These spies are gone for 40 days, and they come back. And they verify everything the Lord has said, that this land is rich. It's rich in produce. It's rich in quality. It's fertile. It's a beautiful land. Everything that God said it was going to be. But there's a problem. There's giants in the land. The inhabitants, the Canaanites, they're giants. They're huge. They're well fortified with iron cities. And indeed, there's no way that we're going to be able to take possession of this land because of these powerful enemies. There were two that said, no, 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 no time out. Caleb and Joshua. So remember what the Lord said. He told us that the land was going to be rich and fertile. He told us that we would be able to overtake these enemies. We must trust that the Lord will guide us. But none of the other spies agreed. In fact, no one out of the entire community of Israel agreed. 600,000 people. And all of them grumbled. And they said, is it why has God led us out into the desert to kill us? It would make more sense for us to go back. And they grumbled and talked of stoning uh, Moses. Scripture there tells us that their hearts actually became embittered against Moses. Well, what was the result? The result was the anger and the wrath of God. Forty years of wandering in the desert because they were not ready to take up God on his promise. Now, the question I want to touch on is, did God know that the land was going to be filled with these enemies? Yes, he did. Was this a test? The answer is yes, it was a test. Now, some of you may say, well, that's not true. God, God doesn't test people. But the reality is God most certainly does. What God doesn't do is tempt people. God doesn't tempt people with evil because God is not evil. But God certainly tests people to see what's in their hearts. Look at verse 8 there, which tells us, uh, Do not harden your hearts in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. In fact, what we'll see is 40 years later, when the descendants co go into the promised land under Joshua, that they battle and they subdue a lot of the land, but the scriptures tell us that God deliberately leaves some enemies in the land to test the descendants after Joshua to see if they will be faithful to the Lord. God does test. Now, some of you may say, well, that's not fair. We're, 
we're all then just a bunch of puppets on a string where God is pulling the levers and maneuvering. But think a little bit about that. Think about these Israelites who were chosen to be led out of slavery. Think of the things that they saw, the different plagues of the gnats and the flies and the blood. Think of the, the, the pillar of smoke, of cloud and fire, the parting of the Red Sea. Think of them on Mount Sinai as God descends upon the mountain. Think of all of the way that they were sustained in the wilderness, all the mighty deliverance they got to see. In fact, we see that God says, none of these people who have disobeyed me ten times or more will be able to enter into the promised land. It is fair because God gave them everything they needed to make that good decision. But they chose to turn away and there were consequences. All of them, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, died in the desert. And so the writer is turning to the church, this church here, and he's saying, take care. Verse 12, take care. Literally in the Greek, it's watch out. Just like if a car is coming along and you would say, watch out. That's what he's saying. Watch out. That you, like these Israelites, don't have an unbelieving heart in the, in the face of all that God is doing in your life and turn away because there will be consequences in your life. Now, there are two key points that I want to make. The first is, we can read this and say, oh, look what they did. They forfeited their inheritance. But I want to say that that's not true. The reality is they never had the inheritance in the first place because the testing revealed who they are, who they were. See, testing didn't cause them to fall away. Unbelief caused them to fall away. Look at verse 12. Take care lest you have an unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. The testing revealed what was inside. There's a huge difference between being and becoming. And the scripture here is not about becoming. In fact, if I was to read verse 6 to you, which uh, I will read that says, But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. It doesn't say we become his house. It says we are his house if we hold on. Activity determines identity. Identity is shown by persevering to the end. Verse 14, if indeed we hold on to our original confidence to the end. We're not talking about becoming, rather we're talking about being. The testing reveals who we are. Which brings up my second point, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, isn't it? We've all been part of something where we've gotten excited at the beginning and we've gone off, whether it's a political campaign or an education track or something. But it's not how you start, it's how you finish. See, there's folks that have come to me before that are struggling and, and have pretty much given up on their faith, but they say, well, but I'm saved because I remember at that Billy Graham retreat that I heard the message and I walked down the aisle and I gave my life to Jesus. Or I was at that Young Life camp and I sat out there on the dock and I gave my life to Jesus. The reality is the test of our faith is where we're at now, not where we were at 10, 
15, 20 years ago because identity determines action. So we must be serious about our Christianity. We can't be casual about the tests in our life because they reveal who we are. I remember when I had a goal to compete and to qualify for the Boston Marathon. I think I've talked about this some time before, which for me was a lofty goal because I wasn't a runner. And it's shown that there's only about 10% of people can, uh, will run a time that will qualify for the Boston Marathon. So I wanted to be that one person out of 10 who would be able to qualify. And it was 1994, and uh, you know I'd run one marathon before, but I just had this lofty goal I wanted to qualify. And so I started training. But the reality is I didn't have anyone to train with. I didn't know what I was doing, and I really didn't care to find out that much because I just relied on my spryful youth and got out there and ran a lot. Well, I trained, but the reality was that I didn't train for three hours and 10 minutes. I trained for probably about three hours and 30 minutes. So lo and behold, I was there on the course at the Marine Corps Marathon, mile 18, and that's when the engine started to seize up. And I crashed and I burned getting across the line uh, in three hours, 26 minutes. You see, the reality is I didn't really believe it. Because if I did, I would have lived it. I, it was kind of like a casual goal. I almost set myself up to fail. Gosh, I wonder if I can do this. But if I don't, it's okay because I really haven't trained for it. See, I had the wrong attitude. And it wasn't until 11 years later that I said, I'm going to get serious about this and I'm going to do it. I believe that I can be one of those 10 people. And so I went ahead and got serious about this. I read up everything I could. I got around runners. I created a regimen that was befitting a Boston Marathon qualifier. I spent ridiculous oodles of money on equipment and was out in all sorts of different crazy hours of the day. My friends laughed at me because of all of the insanity that I was doing. But I knew every single bit counted. In fact, one of the most dangerous things uh, to a marathon runner is weight. It's been shown that one ounce of weight affects one second per mile. So I knew that I needed to have as little weight necessary in my gear and body. Well, the day of the race came. By that time, I was a different age group. I needed to run it in three hours, 15 minutes, 59 seconds. Well, I crossed the finish line in three hours, 14 minutes, 50 seconds. After running for 11,640 seconds, I made it within 70 seconds of my goal. That's a 0.006 percentage change. And as I reflect back upon this, what was the difference between succeeding and failing? <clears throat> it was really this simple. One ounce equals one second per mile. The difference between success and failure was 2.5 ounces, a drink of water. If I had carried that weight, I would have failed. Now some may say to me, I qualified for Boston when I crossed the line. The truth of the matter is that's not true at all. I was worthy of Boston before I set foot on the track. The race simply revealed what was within. See, we all have tests my friends. And God is not arbitrary. He doesn't throw things just in our lap to see how we'll deal with them. 
Rather, they serve to show what is inside of us. They also serve to show the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord amidst our difficulties. Maybe you have a test right now that you're right in the midst of. The bills are coming due. You don't exactly know how you're going to pay them. Things aren't working out financially. The client list has shrunk. And you have no idea how this problem is going to get taken care of. And you hear the voices, and the reality is you're tempted to turn back. Why have I come so far trusting in the Lord when He's going to leave me here to fall in the desert? Listen, the test is for you right now. James 1.2 says that consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish his work so that you may mature and complete, not lacking anything. You must understand that this test is your opportunity to reveal what is in your heart. So we must also take it seriously. God is showing you himself. And God is showing you yourself. You can't rely on the past. You can't rely on how other people are with their faith. You must look to now. Because how you respond determines who you are. Tests are opportunities. Well, now I want to touch on point two, which is how do we prepare for these tests so we're ready when they come? Because the reality is the test will come, won't it? Now, some of you are hearing this talk and you're saying to yourself, oh man, I need to change the way I'm living. I got to stop going to those places. I need to stop acting that way. I need to pick up my Bible. I need to stop being mean to my family. I've got to do all those things. But the reality is what you're dealing with is behavior. And what this scripture is talking about is the heart because what's inside is what comes on the outside. Look at all the references. Verse 8, do not harden your heart. Verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12, take care lest you have an unbelieving heart. Verse 15, again, it's about the issue of the heart. What happened to these people in the time of Moses? Their hearts became hardened. This word in the Greek, the verb is skleruno, from the Greek uh, noun skleros. That's where we get the word hard. Uh, arteriosclerosis, a hardening of the arteries. Their hearts became hardened to the things of God. Well, how did that happen? What exactly is a hard heart anyways? Look at verse 12 where it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. A hard heart is an unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. Now the question is, how did their hearts become hard? I mean, think about it. They had all of these wonderful visions of what God has done, and so do we. The answer, the hardening agent of the heart, is the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, it's the deceitfulness of sin that causes us to question the goodness of God. Is God really loving? 
Is God really caring? Will God take care of you? To inject those questions. In fact, we've been seeing that from the beginning. Wasn't it Satan that came along to man and woman? Did God really say not to eat from that tree? The deceitfulness of sin is what crept into their hearts, hardening it. But this word, deceitfulness of sin, can also be translated the pleasure of sin. See, they looked at God's goodness, and they looked at the pleasure of sin, and they said, I'll take door B instead of door A. And their hearts became hardened by sin. So what's the solution to protecting our hearts from becoming hardened by sin? It's twofold. Number one, the first is take care. Watch out. We must become monitors of our heart. Anybody have a heart monitor? Does anyone have a battery? <laughs> anyone have a heart monitor? Is this coming in and out? My uh, battery pack, whatever the case. We must monitor our heart. What's going on on the inside? I don't know about you, but often I go to the doctor every six months, 12 months for what? A checkup. To take a look at what's going on with my heart. But there's a second thing that we must do. Verse 13. Notice it says, But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The reality is we need one another or our hearts will ultimately be hardened. This word exhort, parakaleo, we've heard it before with the Holy Spirit, is to come alongside. To come alongside and to encourage one another to help us to remember the goodness of God and help us to keep going. In, 19, in 2005, when I decided to run the Shamrock Marathon to try to qualify, 11 years later, I got serious like I talked about. But there was one more thing that I did. I recruited two friends of mine because I realized that I couldn't do it alone. The, uh, my first friend, Roger Church, he ran the first half of the marathon with me alongside of me, encouraging me, distracting me so that I could get to the first part of the marathon. And then my good friend, John Thomas, JT, kicked in at 13.1. And JT ran alongside with me. And it was probably about mile 21, been running for about two and a half hours, and I was done. I was out. I was ready to throw in the towel. There was no way I was going to make it. And there came those deceitful messages. Give up. Turn out. Go get a Coke. Relax. You could be better if you just stopped. But there was JT sensing my unbelief. And JT came alongside of me. And what JT would do is he would run right in front of me. And as he was running, he would run and he would point right here to his right foot, saying, stay right here. Come alongside me. And all I could think of was JT's finger saying, stay right alongside of me. There is not a doubt in my mind that there is no way I would have been able to finish without JT, who came alongside me to exhort me to the end. See, the reality, folks, is unbelief rarely manifests itself when times are good. But the seeds of unbelief are sown in the times of good. See, no one gets hardening of the arteries overnight, do they? You don't just get an instant heart attack. 
It's the buildup over time again and again and again. So I must ask you, friends, are you monitoring your heart? What are you putting into the inside of your faith? What are you reading? What are you filling up the dreams of your life with? Are you letting the world dictate to you your faith? Or is your faith dictating to the world? How soft is your heart? Here are a couple good questions to ask. Are you growing mad at God? Mad at God for the situation in your life, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend that's not working out, or the lack of one, or a marriage that isn't working out, or a job. Are you growing mad at God? Are you making demands of God? God, I'll love you if, but if you don't, is the world becoming more attractive to you? So much so that there's sort of a double life. There's the life I lead on Sunday morning, and there's the life I lead everywhere else. Watch out. Become an expert at reading your heart. And the second point I have to ask is, who is exhorting you? Who's alongside of you with their hand pointing down saying, stay right here, stay by me. We're going to make it together. You know, fellowship is more than just hanging out. It's more than just showing up someplace. It's encouraging one another, helping people to see the finish line, helping people to see that Jesus Christ is all who he says he is. That's why I keep exhorting you to be part of a community group. Grow with people, because if we don't have folks exhorting one another, sooner or later that heart will get hard, and that testing may reveal something that we don't want to see. This brings me to my final point, because we will have testing. And some of you may say, how do I know if I will make it to the end? How do we persevere? The answer to this is that we don't have confidence in ourselves, but the one who has already persevered. You know, there are three living men who have received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Three men right now. The second one, his name was Ranger Leroy Petrie, Petrie who received it in Afghanistan in 2008. His actions came as a part of a rare daylight raid to capture a high-value building in Afghanistan. And on the day of the action, uh, that's when he would uh, uh, get the Medal of Honor. It, uh, he's a ranger, and the operation involved about 70 rangers who were supposed to take over this building. And they were taking on 40 enemies, 12 of them armed. As soon as the helicopters hit the, uh, the courtyard there, they came under heavy fire. Well, they managed to take the building, and then Petri uh, uh, took a PFC Lucas Robinson with him to clear the outer courtyard that hadn't yet been cleared. They immediately came under fire, and Petri was shot by a round that went through both of his legs. And although he was wounded, he helped to get PFC Robinson to cover behind a chicken coop, and another ranger came to help the wounded soldiers. But a short time later, they were wounded again by a grenade thrown at them by one of the Taliban fighters. And then another grenade landed in their midst. It was at that moment that Petri, already wounded in the legs, lunged for the live grenade to throw it away from his fellow rangers. It was almost instinct, Petri told Army News Service. It was probably going to go off, and I figure it was a four and a half second fuse, give or take. I figure if you have time to see it, you have time to kick it or throw it and get it out of there. But just as he picked up the grenade to throw it and release it, 
the grenade exploded in his right hand. I actually didn't think it was going to go off, Petri said. I didn't really feel much pain. I didn't know it had gone off until I looked back and I saw that it had completely amputated at the wrist. Remarkably, Petri placed a tourniquet on his right hand and reported by radio that he and others had been uh, hurt. Uh, Sergeant First Class Dadel said Petri could have saved himself and then the other two rangers would have probably been dead, but he put his own life at risk to grab that grenade and throw it around the corner and save all three of them. We would like to say that every ranger would do uh, that given the exact same situation, but you're never going to know until you're placed in that situation. See, amidst that situation, Petri had a choice. And what did he choose? In the midst of the situation and the tension, he chose love. See, the reality is God is not immune to our difficulties either. God is not some puppet master up in the sky who's playing games with us. But God loved us so much that he became a man, that he walked amidst us as Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ picked up the grenade of sin and he held it on the cross and he died that we might have life in him. We do not have an unfeeling, uncaring God. Not a God who hardened his heart to us, but rather whose heart was soft to us. We came, we have a God who came to earth and picked up the grenade of sin. And so we can say this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so how can we know that we'll persevere? Look at verse 14. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See, our original confidence is not in this, that we have it all together, that we have what it takes. Our original confidence is in Jesus Christ that he is the perfect one who will lead us to the end. Jesus Christ is the one who comes alongside of us with his finger and says, stay right here with me. I will lead you all the way to the end. Identity determines action. We have a savior. The proof of how we respond in testing, whether we look to ourselves, whether we look to the world, or whether we look to Jesus Christ is the proof of who we really are. By God's grace, let us look to Christ and he will take us all the way to the finish line. For he who called us is faithful to the end. Let us pray.